Resolute Square. There was also maintained what was called an enemy's list, which is rather extensive and continually being updated. I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and I wouldn't lose any voters, okay? The women with the least likelihood of getting pregnant are the ones most worried about having abortions. On January 6th of 2021, you had tens of thousands of people peacefully protesting. So, it's not a right-wing conspiracy theory. It's not QAnon. It's real. <laughs> I'm Rick Wilson, and this is The Enemies List. Well, folks, welcome back once again to the Enemies List, and my guest today is Kevin Cruz. He is a brilliant historian who has a perspective on American history that I think you're going to really enjoy. And uh, and Kevin, to start out, thank you so much for coming on the Enemies List. And as I was saying just before we got, went on the air here, I think a lot of our politics is infected with this completely distorted, weird, false narrative about American history that has led us into these sort of rabbit holes in the last... 50 years, maybe, that depend on an understanding of America that isn't real. And you've written a lot about it, including with your new book, Myth America, on just how distorted people's ideas of American history are. Let's talk about that a little bit. And then I want to like get down into the into some cases on that front. Yeah, well, our understanding of the past uh, doesn't sit on its own, right? It dictates how we see the present and how we think about the future, right? So having a belief in things that are wrong or, or simply off about the past uh, can, can change how we, we act in the future. So if you think about, you know, it used to be that uh, Americans uh, believed that Reconstruction was a failure. The idea of going down and the federal government being involved in the South was a horrible problem, uh, and it led to black misrule and poor white Southerners were mistreated, and it was a mistake we should never do again. Well, in the 50s and 60s, a lot of American policymakers in both parties believe that as the gospel truth. Mm -hmm, it wasn't mm -hmm. true, but they come to believe this false history, and they believe they shouldn't do anything in the South, right? And so it led to some real foot dragging when it came to uh, the American government uh, getting involved uh, in the civil rights struggle in the South. So the consequences here play out time and time again, where thinking that a certain course of action is doomed to failure or a certain course of action will invariably succeed blinds us. Uh, to the realities. I think that idea, I mean, and so much of this, I think so much of the distortion of our, of our historical understanding does wrap around the race and the civil war and the post-civil war era and the division inside the Republican party from that original, the, the more Northeastern liberal Republican party as it transformed. And, and a lot of people switched positions and switched polarities, mm -hmm. especially across the South is something that it's it's hard for me to, to as a southerner you know it's it's hard for people to look away from the sort of comfortable myth-based reality of it and and to just ignore it i mean and and look when i was a republican we used to have that like hard line of we've never been racist no one's ever racist the country's not racist there's no right. racism and race doesn't matter i mean and it, it as our friend Stuart Stevens says it was all a lie and right and it does seem like that's the through line in so much of of the distortion of of our knowledge of America is that race is this is this never it's not just the the it's not simply the conflicts of race and around race and around slavery, but the rewriting the the boulderizing the the 
the rebooting of history over and over again, especially on the right about the role of race in American society. Yeah, it's really been remarkable. And I think what's really striking about the, the current era is that we reached that point of total denialism, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, of saying that the Republican Party had had never made any kind of appeals on race. Anytime you hear someone making it's kind of those grand statements about this has never happened in the history of X, you can generally be assured that's wrong. <laughs> right. and, and of course here, of course here, it, it absolutely was wrong. And what's remarkable is, is, again, we've reached this point where they're saying it's never happened. The Republican Party over previous decades had tried to reckon with that past, right? Yes. And so- whether it was Lee Atwater in 1981 saying, you know, look, you're saying the Reagan era appeals are racist. We're not. I freely admit, he said, that Nixon made coded appeals on mm-hmm. racism. That was a race-based Southern strategy in the 60s. Atwater acknowledged at the time. But he said, we're different. Then in the Bush era, you had people like uh, Ken Melman and Michael Steele, uh, heads of the RNC, Mm-hmm. apologizing for the Southern strategy and saying, okay, look, we did some bad things back then, but we have now turned the page. And there, I think, unlike Atwater, I think they were sincere. They were sincere about trying to open the party up under under the Bush era. There's a real effort to outreach to African-Americans mm-hmm. and Latinos and really make it a much more diverse party and to turn the page on that. Of course, before you turn the page, you got to acknowledge that page exists. In the Trump era, though, they've completely erased all of that and just said, no, we were the party of Lincoln from the start to today. There's never been any racism at all. And it's a complete disavowal of reality. Well, and I can tell you, you know, inside the Republican and the conservative world, there was this, you never varied. For, if Republicans are great at one thing, it's staying on message. You never varied from right. that message. Oh, the Southern strategy didn't exist. It was a lie. It was a fake. And and, and it's weird because you could, you could find these like alternating parts of their political character. Like Nixon in the 50s at one point gave this speech, and I dug it up one time, about, about ending segregation. I was like, well, that's yeah. something. And, and and he was like, we can't survive as a nation with our cities segregated. And, and I was like, that does that's a contrast to what Ailes created with the silent majority strategy in the 1968 campaign. And you saw these people as you saw, as you know, and I, I remember reading um, the the blacks on uh, or Merlin Earl Black on Rise of Southern Republicanism, yeah. and they yeah. they were pretty honest about it about how these white evangelicals were trans were, were moving toward the the Republicans because it was their coded way of expressing their anger on rising African American status and stature in places like Atlanta and yeah. and places and, like Charlotte. Nixon's a great example of this of this switch, right? Mm-hmm. I think, you know, people have forgotten Nixon in the 50s was wholly in keeping yep. with that party of Lincoln yep. tradition of the Republican Party. He was uh, unlike Eisenhower, Nixon was outspoken on civil rights. Nixon praised the Brown decision. Nixon met with Martin Luther King Jr. He was in Ghana, but he met with him and treated him uh, like a like a dignitary. In the 1960 race when Nixon first ran for president, mm-hmm. The party has an aggressive civil rights plank. Better than the Democrats. Right. Uh, it really is leaning in. It was kind of the Rockefeller wing of the party was there. Mm-hmm. Well, Nixon loses in 60. And there's a meeting uh, I talk about in, in Myth America in the White House where Nixon and Eisenhower and Thruston Morton, who was the head of the RNC, right. basically say, look, we've been chasing the black vote to hell with it. You know, that's literally what Thurston Morton says uh, to hell with it. And so there's this new attitude that takes place uh, under Goldwater uh, shortly thereafter. Mm-hmm. Where Goldwater says, look. We got to go hunting where the ducks are, and the Republican Party starts hunting where the ducks are, which is to go after white Southern segregationists instead of 
kind of racial moderates in the South who are few and far between, uh, and they make an appeal to that. And so Nixon changes course, right? And not immediately. Nixon comes out in favor of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, Voting Rights Act of 65. He's still very much on the, the case there. But when he starts trying to win the Republican nomination in 68, he realizes the path goes through the South. Mm-hmm. And why did he go through the South? Because the RNC in 64 uh, had awarded delegates for the next That's convention right. based on who voted for the party. Well, who voted for the party in 64? The Deep South. So the Deep South holds the key to the election in 68. So Nixon warms up to Strom Thurmond, who he'd previously reviled, right. and, and lets Strom Thurmond and Harry Dent, his advisor, basically vouch for him throughout the South. Uh, and that makes the case uh, that wins him the nomination. Southern conservatives originally love Reagan. They want Reagan to be the nominee yep. in 68. He's much more kind of a stalwart. And they see Nixon as this suspect guy who used to tout civil rights. Uh, but Nixon does a complete flip around and listens to these advisors. So it shows how flexible politicians could be on this uh, really important issue. It also was the era where where Ailes started to perfect the racial coding of crime as, oh, yeah. as a message. And, you know, as I say to people all the time, whether you love or hate Roger Ailes, you cannot deny that he was an absolute genius of message marketing, television, and and absolutely. And, was, and look, I, I I had a liberal friend get very mad at me one time. She's like, "Who have you learned from the most in your career?" And I'm like, "Listen, I used to sit with Roger and just ask him questions because I wanted to know how he did it, and he he was a true genius. And it's a it's a proof that you know genius can be turned to evil to evil ends, obviously." Uh, between Fox and that. So one of the other areas... And, and, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Just, so, sorry, I'm, I've got a, yeah, uh, yeah. Nixon on Ailes, or Ailes on Nixon. You know, we we know Roger Ailes has, has man kind of created the, the Fox News empire. Mm-hmm. What he did with Nixon, though, is an amazing turnaround. Oh, yeah. and, and Ailes, I'm sure you've read it, Ailes' comments on Nixon when he gets the 68 campaign are brutal. You know, they, they say, you know, Nixon looks like a guy who was 42 years old the day he was born. Uh, other kids got a other kids got a football for Christmas. Young Richard Nixon got a briefcase and loved it. Uh, and he knew the challenge was to turn this guy who had right. zero charisma, really, and, and to make him into this kind of figure that the, the South especially could rally around. Mm-hmm, and, and, mm-hmm. and the fact that he was able to do that with someone as bland and milquetoast as Nixon is really remarkable. But Hills is genius was he realized that he could actually sell Nixon right down the middle, that the 68 campaign was the perfect chance for this because Hubert Humphrey was the Democratic nominee, mm-hmm. longtime champion of civil rights. Uh, in fact, in 48 was the speaker of the convention that helped spark the Dixiecrat revolt with his embrace of civil yep. rights. He's the Democratic nominee. You've got George Wallace, diehard segregationist, running as an independent. Nixon could run right down the middle. And so his genius is that he makes an appeal to race that, Compared to George Wallace, doesn't seem as bad. It doesn't seem as stark, right? And again, next to Wallace, no one could see that stark. Ailes drives Nixon down that lane, and it's a really effective strategy, but other candidates would then follow. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. You know, folks, there are always things people need to get off their chests. We carry around a lot of stress in this world. Some of it's big, some of it's small. But all of it, if we keep it bottled up, can affect our health in a negative way. Therapy is a safe place to get things off your chest, to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down, to learn how to deal with those stresses. I know so many people who've benefited so much from therapy. They find a safe place where they can talk about the challenges in their life, where they can learn positive coping skills, they can learn how to set boundaries, and they can learn how to assess what's happening in their world in a way that makes them that better version of themselves. 
Therapy isn't just for people who've been through trauma or suffered a loss. It's for everyone. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Make your brain your friend with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com Wilson today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash Wilson. You know, it's it's the, there's an old there's an old Southernism, and if I had ever said the N word as a child, my grandmother would have slapped my mouth out. I mean, she would have popped me. In, yeah. I mean, that was a, a. My parents were were civil rights liberals, and my grandmother, although she was raised in the very deepest of the deep South, was it and in that weird old guard, old 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 Republican way, like you know, <laughs> Reconstruction was not bad. There was an old joke that that. You know, they used to say, like, don't be overtly racist because it gives intolerance a bad name. And, and that sort of was where I think a lot of the evangelical conservatives in the South and a lot of the racially yeah. motivated folks in the South. And, and this 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 conceit with Republicans like, oh, the Democrats were the party of segregation. OK, guys. We have flipped the script. It is a change demo. Mm-hmm. It is not the same. You can't. The, the idea of a continuity of a party doesn't hold up in American history. I mean, I mean, yeah. it, and the really remarkable part when I hear uh, today's conservatives claim that the party is has never changed. You're writing the conservative pioneers out of a story, yeah. right? It used to be that the kind of Reagan Republicans would look back and say Goldwater seized control of the party in the 60s, <laughs> took it away from the Rockefeller liberals, changed the course. That's our founding narrative. Well, if you claim the party's never changed, you're writing out. Goldwater, Reagan, yep. Gingrich, yep. all these people who who shifted it over time, right? Yep. And and the idea that the idea that the MAGA party of today is like the Republican party that emerged after the Whigs collapsed after the Kansas Nebraska Act is just it's just it's like <laughs> what? And, and yeah. I guess that's another question I have is like beyond the race question, the weird inversions of the party's positions as they flip flop back and forth over time. Like there was an era where the Democrats were the National Security Party. And yep. then the Republicans took that, and now the Republicans have lost it again. How much do you see of that in in American history, like this this polarity flipping inside the parties? And where do you see it headed next? I mean, because I think the Democrats have an opportunity right now to recapture that national security vote that still is out there in a way that they could not have had, ironically, if it wasn't for all the swaggering, tough-talking Trump-era you know, BS that was not founded on anything. No, I think that's exactly right. And we've got we've seen this throughout American history, and it's a, it's a nature of the two party system, right? Mm. In which so much, especially in an era of increasing polarization, so much of a party's identity becomes well, the other guys are X, we've got to be not X, you know. And there are very few points where they come together. I mean, we saw this recently on on free trade, right? Right. Bill Clinton kind of glommed on to Republican ideas of free trade with NAFTA, and then Trump moved the party away from that, right, and re- rejected that. And so I think on national security, you're right. This had long been this issue. You know, Republicans in the 30s were hardcore isolationists, oh, right? Yeah. And Franklin Roosevelt and Harry Truman kind of had to drag them, kicking and screaming into an internationalist vision. Well, then they became solid partners in the Cold War era. And increasingly, it was Democrats who started to back away from that from Vietnam on. And it was Republicans who stepped up and, and kind of claimed that mantle of a strong national security presence. But you're absolutely right. Under Trump, they've largely retreated from that. 
And I think you've seen the Biden administration. One of its quiet successes has been the, the work they've done in foreign Absolutely. policy. Maybe not quiet, but I think it's not uh, given as much attention as it should. Uh, and I think the Democrats have really set this up. And so if Trump becomes a nominee again with this kind of, you know, uh, get out of Ukraine message right. and, and seal and the borders, that's going to work. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I think the Democrats really have an, have an option here to uh, to fill that void. I think so, too. One of the things about about study of history and about history is that I think must be frustrating for a professional like you is how easily like the entertainment wing of the conservative movement has decided to rewrite history. And I look at the things like yeah. Prager University and Glenn Beck and all this weirdly inflected. Some of it is religiously driven to sort of say, oh, the founders were all like Southern Baptist evangelical God squad right. guys. And some of it seems to me to be a lot darker. I mean, they, they sort of get the underpinning philosophy that if you take control of what people believe our history is, you control their destiny. I mean, how dangerous are the conspiracy, like entertainment wing historians to us? Because I want to dismiss them. I want to say, oh, Glenn Beck's a kook and a freak and a weirdo. Yeah. But millions of people pay that guy 15 bucks a month to listen to him yeah. talk, you know, quote Robert Skousen or whoever the these insane oh. people who yeah. who are 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 so far out on the ledge. Yeah, it it really is alarming. Uh, and this is something that I think has have, have alarmed professional historians, you know, left, right, mm -hmm. and center, and prompted us uh in the last you know decade or so to really engage much more with the general public. And we've always, you know, written op-eds and essays sure, and things sure. like that. But the beauty of social media uh, you know, whether it be uh, Twitter, Facebook, the 40,000 new social media sites right. that are now out there, uh, is that it, it gives ordinary folks, uh, ordinary historians at least, a chance to push back on this. And I think what a lot of us have realized in the last two years is there's, thank God, there's a hunger out there among historians for history. Yes. But the problem is that they're getting it from some very suspect sources, right? You go into an airport bookstore and it's, you know, all these Bill O'Reilly <laughs> Killing blanks, you know, uh, or Brian Kilmeade writing about the founders. You know, right. these guys are not, you know, I don't know what their intentions are. Their ghostwriter for all those books bad. is one of my neighbors. He lives like like a mile away from me. And I know the guy. He's, you know. Bad. All right. Well, well congratulate him on his success. Right. Uh, but but uh, I'm sorry. We're going to try to, you know, knock him off the, uh, the bestseller list if we can. But, but there's a real danger there, to, to be serious. Yeah. That, again, because these these fictions if people believe they're fact, they act on mm -hmm. it, right? Uh, and and it's not just the stories we tell about our past are, are stories that, that dictate our present and our future. And um, there's a real danger, I think, here in being led astray. And it's so weaponized. It's so industrialized. It's so – and honestly, a lot of the times – and I say this as, a, as an ad maker and a writer – a lot of the times the production value on this stuff is convincing. It's it's Some of it is, yeah. is – well packaged and 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 if you're not a reader or a thinker or or somebody who's immersed yourself in history, you could be convinced like oh well this sounds legitimate this sounds like yeah. something and, real. This is, this is what you know the the Prager U model mm -hmm. is. And this is what my my essay in in Myth America on Southern mm -hmm. Strategy is a response to a, a video that a political scientist Carol Swain did for Prager U. It's a tight I don't know five ten mm -hmm. minute video. Mm -hmm. Great production values. Very slick, nice graphics, and I can see how it would be convincing. That's why I, I bothered first on Twitter and now in this piece to kind of push back on it. And it's easy to do these kind of things glibly, 
right? right. Uh, and and anytime you're getting your worldview in a in a five minute YouTube video, you should pause and think about that, right? Because these videos, it's easy to cherry pick different facts from the past and to throw them out as a constellation and say, look, that looks exactly like this, and I'm going to show you mm-hmm. that that's ironclad proof, right. right? So I could sit here and say, you know, if we have the production values you've got them, maybe we could do this. We could do a video where I insist that the historical record shows the Republican Party is the party of abortion rights. And let me tell I you I can make that argument and make it. You can, you make can package it up. Ronald Reagan signed uh-huh. the California abortion, abortion. liberalization yep. law and made it in, in that state. Roe v. Wade, written by a Nixon appointee, appointee to, to the, the Supreme Court. Court. Yep. You can go on and on like this, right? And you can cherry pick little facts here and say, well, look at all those things. They were all Republicans. They all supported abortion rights. Therefore, here's the end conclusion. And it's, 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 it would be snappy, have some nice graphics behind it. We could get it out there and people would, would, would pass it along. A lot of this comes from the fact that people want to believe these things and are looking for people to give them a license to believe them, right? right? And the slick packaging and, and, the, and the kind of the glitzy promotions do this in a way that, that make these arguments sell. The fact that someone's trying to sell you this history should alert should show you. you that. <laughs> Yeah, it should, should warn you, but they're trying to make a buck off this for a reason. Well, and and somebody one time brilliantly described PragerU to me. He said, he said it is these are videos to make people you know who who are not educated feel educated, who do not have intellectual curiosity feel like they've been given some inside hermetic knowledge of the past, and that's that's always what drives his like conspiracy theories are appealing because they make people who do not have a wide view of of the world around them. It makes them, it gives them this consistent, coherent explanation of things they don't understand. Yeah. And this is the way in which it's always packaged on, on Twitter of this is Dinesh D'Souza's favorite thing. Hey, did you know the democratic party was the party of white supremacy and segregation? Yeah, we all knew we've been teaching it in books and classes for hundreds of years. Did you know they all moved over to the Republican party in the 1960s? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that's suddenly the conspiracy. Yeah, so so this this sense of, of there's a conspiracy, and I'm letting you in on some secret knowledge right. that you can then use in your fights is the way this all works. And one that is, you know, you just pointed out something really important in this. That is one of the big things is they they think there's a value in and of itself of owning the libs, of fighting with people, of presenting alternative, you know, historical yeah. facts, and saying debate me, bro. It is a weird cultural artifact of post-1994 conservatism that having an alternative set of facts, to quote Kellyanne Conway, (laughs) empowers you to own the libs, to to win battles. I mean, Ben Shapiro says that to people all the time. I will debate them on facts and logic. And it's not all fact and it's not all logic. It's it's frankly a very emotional appeal to to people who feel, and I, God, I'm going to get in so much trouble. There is a, and I've seen it in a, a hundred focus groups, it's not economic anxiety. It's social anxiety and social jealousy Correct. and an anger Correct. about elites and about the educated where they feel like, because they've been fed this by Fox and everybody else. Oh, you're the oppressed class. You know, you're, you, you, you poor yeah. middle class white guy. You are the one who's really suffering in America. <laughs> so 
So you've also written a lot about the sort of the the emergence and and, and corporatization of evangelical Christianity, which is another. Got, you know, hey, folks mm-hmm. on the podcast today, we're touching we're touching race and religion. So let's <laughs> just go ahead and churn the water. Um, but you've talked about a lot, sort of like the the way evangelical Christianity has been weaponized and corporatized and and branded and marketed in this country. And I don't think a lot of people, even inside the evangelical movement, and while I was a Republican and a conservative, I was never an evangelical. Uh, I was never a social conservative, like by any Mm. description. Talk to us a little bit about how that's happened and how that's changed our culture. My second book called One Nation Under God, I I talked about this this process in which, you know, we're all familiar with kind of the the markings of of religious nationalism in America. You know, there's maybe seeming to be small things in God we trust uh, on the dollar bill in your pocket or on the coins in your pocket or, you know, uh, One Nation Under God as a part of the Pledge of Allegiance. And the original story had been that all these things happened in the 1950s, and they happened solely because America was at war with the Soviet Union. Right. And the Soviet Union is made up of atheistic, godless commies. <laughs> well, we've got to embrace religion at home. That's a story I'd always learned. What I found in researching this book, though, is that this fight comes about, uh, this, this change comes about in the 50s, largely because of a longer process that started in the 30s, and it's about businesses being opposed to the New Deal, right? They fight against the New Deal. They want to dismiss this as kind of, you know, of this kind of status monstrosity. The problem is no one in the 1930s is listening to big business because they got them into the depression, right? right? And so their reputation is in the dumps. So who do they get to make this message for them? They get a couple sympathetic ministers to do this. Uh, and so they start promoting this idea of freedom under God as opposed to slavery under the state. So it's a version of a libertarianism that is called at the time Christian libertarianism because normal libertarianism <laughs> doesn't have that religious angle. Anyway, long, long story. It gets them involved in this in this process, and it starts this marriage of Christianity and capitalism, which had long right. been seen as odds, but they really do find a way to convince evangelical and fundamentalist Christians, and actually other Protestants too, that you can actually combine Christianity and capitalism. In fact, they're inseparable. They're both these systems in which the individual rises and falls on their own <laughs> merits. You either go to heaven or make right. a profit, or you go to hell or you go bankrupt, right? And so from that starting point, there's really been a, a really closer relationship between a, not all faiths, but there's been a, a real trend on the right of the so-called prosperity sure. gospel, right? And we've seen versions of this mm-hmm. before, uh, but it really came uh, roaring back uh, in the 80s and beyond, and we, and we see it today. And they ignore all the, you know, the many lines that Jesus had about uh, cautioning against wealth and, you know, rich man can't get into the heaven. heaven, right. Uh, and they, they jettison all that. And they say, no, actually, making money is a sign of God's favor on you uh, and a sign of your success. And you should you should, you should brag about right. it, right? That's, right? that's a sign of God's favor. And so they've really made peace with this in, in really uh, remarkable ways. It goes against the, yeah, I mean, I'm Catholic. It goes against the catechism <laughs> that I yep. grew up with. But others have convinced themselves that, that this is the way to go. Yeah, and, and that 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 prosperity gospel, that Creeflo Dollar, Joel Olstein, you know, mm-hmm. there was a... I think you could argue there's a really clear emergence of and, and and going back to what like Trump's only exposure to Christianity growing up was at the Marble Church and that was yeah. proto or or 1.0 prosperity gospel and very much yeah Norman, Norman Vincent Peale the yeah. social aspect of Christianity and that was a was wrapped up in money and success and mm-hmm. position. But the modern era of those evangelical churches, they are a business. They are weaponized. They are political. Uh, believe me, when I was a Republican, we had a guy 
at the at the Republican Party of Florida who was the evangelical megachurch guy. And they made it was a deal making process. It wasn't like, oh, we believe this person's better on this or that issue. It was let's make a deal. What are you going to give me? How much are we going to get out of this? Right. Who's going to pay this and that? And it was I mean, as venal and 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 look, it, it Everything short of selling indulgences, and they kind of do in sure. a way. They kind yeah, of do. It, yeah. it is. It is. It is. It gives people this sense of community and comfort. And look, plenty of problems in our society with with people feeling isolated and broken and lonely, and and those yeah. things are you know those are very appealing. I think to a lot of folks who see a world changing rapidly around them. As we go on into the the weird. 2024 election in the future where uh, this this history we're writing now how do you think people are going to look back in like 50 years on this window in our history well it's hard to make predictions in For the sure. moment as an historian i'm trained in hindsight and uh, and i'm always i'm always conscious of the people in the past who made really bad predictions you know goldwater gets wiped out in 64 the republican That's the conservatives, conservatives are gone well, not really <laughs> yeah conservatives are gone yeah so you, you've heard all those uh, but I will say we definitely live in interesting times that will be meaningful. Yeah. The uh, the disruptions I think we've seen, all the things that we have been talked about during the Trump era as unprecedented, mm -hmm. that breakage will surely be noted. Um, uh, what happens next is yet to be written. But the fact that we have gone so far off the rails uh, is really remarkable. We could write ourselves, uh, you know, and get ourselves back on track, I think. Uh, as we did after, you know, say after Watergate, there was a real a movement mm -hmm. to, to make uh, government better and cleaner. Uh, that could happen. Uh, or we could continue to descend into chaos. Yeah. The, so stay tuned. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, things, things do fall apart. In, in they do. They do. And that's, I think, one of the real lessons of history is that uh, I think a lot of Americans, uh, to our credit, have a real optimism sure. uh, despite our modern grumbling. But things are going to hold together. We're going to be okay. Things can go bad, and they can go bad quickly. And so, don't get complacent about this and assume that uh, that, that things are going to get better. I always like to remind students that yes, Martin Luther King Jr. famously said that the moral arc of the universe bends towards justice, and then he went to work every single to day to bend arc. it right. himself. Right? He didn't sit back and wait for it to happen. Right? So we've got to all remain vigilant. We've all got to stay uh, kind of fighting for our democracy because uh, it's worth fighting. I, I couldn't agree more. And 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 you're right. The 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 risk that things fall apart is under underpriced in our political climate right now. And look, I started out before I went into politics full time as a Soviet studies guy and studied Soviet history and Russian history mm -hmm. and philosophy. The Russians, even to the and then I was in the Defense Department right after I got out of college, as the Cold War is ending. And the shock yeah. among Russians we would interview and talk to was so profound. It still shapes everything that's happening there today. They really mm -hmm. believed as bad as the Soviet system was, as broken and corrupt and terrible as it was, that they would have just always muddle through. They would always get by it. And, and even yeah. a more robust, resilient society like our own, which I, I will argue we are more resilient politically – than, than the Soviets were, we are still on the on a risky spot. We're still in a very dangerous spot because authoritarianism moves faster yeah. than democracy and and hits harder. Absolutely, and and, and January six should really you know mm -hmm. there's a there's a tendency just like with Watergate to kind of write it off. Well, yeah, we had a moment right. of crisis, but we got past it. Everything's fine now. No, mm -hmm. that 
script can replay itself if we're not all careful. And so I think we need to realize that we dodged a bullet there. That doesn't mean the gun's Correct. empty. Correct. hundred percent. Kevin Cruz, thank you so very much for a fantastic conversation today. Uh, we look forward to having you back. Thanks um, for having me on, Rick. Tell us where people can find you on social media. Uh, I'm on, I don't know, the things, Twitter, threads, <laughs> posts, every single thing. Look for me. My handle is usually Kevin M. Cruz, my middle initial, Michael. I'm also on Substack, kevinmcruz.substack.com. I don't know. I'm probably standing behind you in my grocery <laughs> store right now. Look around. All right. Well, Kevin, thank you so much for joining us today. And we will look forward to talking to you again very soon. <laughs> Today's entry on the enemies list is Governor Brian Kemp of the great state of Georgia. Brian Kemp is a guy who stood up to Trump a little bit by refusing to, quote, give him 11,000 plus votes to win the election of 2020. And a lot of people looked at him as a hero. A lot of people thought of him as a good guy. I praised him at the time myself. But now, Brian Kemp, who desperately, by the way, wants to run for president, if not now, then in the future. Today, Brian Kemp came out basically and said he'd vote for Donald Trump after all the things he's done, after everything he knows. Still said, I'm going to vote for Trump because, you know, the party. This is example, an example of the moral cowardice of the Republican Party writ large. This is an example of why there are no good guys left. Once Liz and Adam were out the door, the last people in the party who would stand up to this guy and be real about it, and maybe Chris Christie and Asa get a little bit of a, of, of a, a silver star here, but this is a governor. This is a guy that the money people have been looking at and saying, oh, he's the future. He's put together. He's not crazy. He's he's a he's a Republican, a conservative. He'll do the tax cuts. He'll do the social stuff we want. But he's not Trump and he's not insane. He's just like it. Everyone who buys into this moral compromise of Donald Trump, of protecting him and voting for him, until you can say, I'm a Republican and I will not vote for a criminal I will not vote for a man who's been indicted over and over and over and over again, who's been found guilty of sexual assault, who's been indicted under the Espionage Act, who's being indicted for voter fraud, who's going to be indicted for trying to orchestrate and organize the January 6th insurrection and the attempt to overthrow the U.S. government and overthrow a free and fair election. Until you can say, I can't vote for that guy, you don't deserve the title of Republican. You don't deserve the title of American. You don't deserve to be in public office. So, Brian Kemp, you today are on the enemies list. Thanks again for listening to the enemies list. If you have any comments, questions, or if there's someone you'd like to hear on the podcast, hit me up on Twitter at the Rick Wilson. Thanks again for the wonderful support you've shown the pod. We're growing fast. It really helps if you will share this with your friends, your family, and anyone else who, like us, is trying to save democracy. While you're at it, if you could rate and review the podcast, I would be very much appreciative. I know this is the sort of thing you've heard a billion times, please rate, review, like, blah, 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 but you need to do it. It really does help us a lot. We are slaves to the algorithm, my friends, and if you do this, it will help get the pod out further. Anyway, thanks again for listening. I'll see you next time. And remember, whatever you do, stay off the list. <laughs>